Are you allergic to sugar if you have a sucrose intolerance? You hear all this hype about celiac disease or gluten-related issues, but you haven't been hearing about sucrose intolerance. And there are going to be some of you, this is going to change your life. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast. Georgetown, South Carolina, Garden City, Kansas, Sand Point, Idaho. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 38 of season 5, number 337 overall. It is finally out. The long-awaited, highly anticipated follow-up to the best-selling book, Fiber-Fueled, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, is now available. And the author... And our good friend, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, is available here today, answering your questions on the exam room live and taking your gut health to the next level. So today we will be taking a close look at food allergies, lots of different ones, but one in particular you may not really have given much thought to. Could you be allergic to sugar? Okay, sure, it tastes plenty sweet, but if sugar makes your stomach sour, could that actually be an allergic reaction? We're going to be finding out. Also, FODMAPs, histamine, synthetic substances in your food, and how they could be affecting your digestive tract, plus gluten, fermentation, a lot about that. You name it, we're going to cover it. So strap in for the next 40 minutes. We will be taking a fiber-fueled ride down the health superhighway with Dr. Will Bolsowitz. How are you, my friend? Congratulations on the release. Hello, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. It's, you can see the smile on my face. It's a very big week for me. Um, I have been building up to this moment for like you know basically a year and a half. And it's a lot of work behind the scenes. You don't see the growth that's taking place behind the curtain, but there is a lot of growing and it all leads up to this moment where I finally get to share this book that I'm so proud of, the Fiber Fields Cookbook. So thank you for having me and thank you everyone for being here today with us. All right. The first person to lob a question your way is Tim. This is an interesting one, my friend. Tim wants to know, are you allergic to sugar if you have a sucrose intolerance? I know that's something that you cover in the book as well. Yeah. So this, okay. Th first of all, thank you, Tim, for this question. This is a potential game changer for some people who are here today. I'm, I'm just going to tell you this right now. You hear all this hype about celiac disease or gluten related issues, but you haven't been hearing about this, what you're reading right here, sucrose intolerance. And there are going to be some of you, this, this, this is going to change your life. So here's the deal. Um, sucrose intolerance is actually a genetically motivated condition, meaning that you are born with a predisposition. It's called CSID, congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. Now look, the name is super nerdy, but what you need to understand is that a person who has this condition, CSID, congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency, they struggle when they consume sucrose. You've probably heard of sucrose before. That's because sucrose is table sugar. 
and you might be really good, all right? You might be SOS free. Say, I'm not including sugar in my food, right? I'm not baking with it. I'm not doing anything with it. I eat a clean diet. But here's the thing. Sucrose is in healthy food too. And sucrose, when it's a part of like fruit, for example, or sweet potatoes, like we're not vilifying fruit or sweet potatoes. We're not saying that these are unhealthy foods. These are healthy foods. But if you have this condition, CSID, then you are in a position where you may struggle to process and digest that sucrose, whether it comes in a healthy food or whether you're eating a cookie or a cupcake. And so the what can happen is that you eat the food and you get gas, bloating, potentially diarrhea. If you are someone who has been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, with SIBO, you're having gas, bloating, diarrhea, and you don't know why, you need to answer this question. Do you have sucrose intolerance? And it's easy. You do a breath test. If you are in the United States, you can actually get your medical doctor to order this breath test for free. The company that makes the uh, enzyme replacement, which by the way, I have no relationship with, but the company that makes the enzyme replacement for this deficiency, they actually will offer the test to you for free. And if you discover that you have this, it could change your life. Here's a quick story, Chuck. I hope you don't mind. There was a woman who I used to work with who, uh, like I used to because she doesn't need me anymore. <laughs> she was suffering for 10 years with a diminished quality of life because of irritable bowel syndrome. She got diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and then she bounced from doctor to doctor to doctor because no one was really making any progress. She was continuing to have diarrhea after meals. And when I talked to her, I asked the question, have you been tested for sucrose intolerance? The answer was, what are you talking about, doc? I said, okay, let's get you tested for sucrose intolerance. Let's do the breath test. She does the breath test. It comes back positive. She goes on the enzyme replacement, which by the way is natural. The enzyme is completely naturally sourced. She goes on the enzyme replacement. Guess what happens to her irritable bowel syndrome? Gone. Nice. Non-existent. And the worst, so this brings up a couple points, which I hope, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but part of the issue here is once a person gets labeled with irritable bowel syndrome, it's like doctors stop thinking because everything is just IBS. Well, what if it's not IBS? What if it's something like this? This is part of what I'm giving you in my new cookbook. It's not just a cookbook. It has 125 recipes, but it's more than just a cookbook. This is a book that's going to give you the guidance that you need to be empowered for better health so that you can go and do something like go to your doctor and say, hey, I read about this sucrose intolerance in Dr. Bolsowitz's book. Can you arrange for me to have the breath test? And then you get an answer one way or the other. <laughs> and that could change your life. Dude, that's great, man. That's that's awesome. I didn't even know about a breath test being able uh, to be used to digest, uh, to, to diagnose digestive disorders. Like that is that is wild to me, man. That is that oh. is science at its finest. Well, and they have these different breath tests, Chuck. There's different breath tests for different things. There's a breath test for lactose intolerance. If you consume dairy, you could do a breath toast breath test for lactose intolerance. That's actually pretty reliable. It's actually a pretty good test. 
this test for sucrose intolerance is a, is a reliable good test. Now, they also have breath tests, for example, fructose intolerance. It's not reliable. It's not a very good test. I wouldn't waste your time or your money. It'll just confuse you. And they have breath tests for SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. People often wonder about SIBO. By the way, I write about SIBO in the new book. I actually provide more detail and guidance than I've ever provided on the topic. But when it comes to SIBO, the breath test is like a flip of the coin, whether or not it's even accurate. Tons of false positives, tons of false negatives. You get a positive test. Do you even know that it's a real positive test? You get a negative test. Do you even know that it's a real negative test? So this is the this is the problem is like we can't use tests that are not reliable. But what I'm telling you though is that for sucrose intolerance, we have a non-invasive, this does not require an endoscopy, non-invasive, easy test that you can do, you can get answers, and then you are empowered to make smarter choices going forward. One of the other things that you cover extensively in the Fiber Fueled Cookbook is histamines. And we have a question from Sarah who says, uh, and this is a really good point. She says, when I think of histamines, I think about seasonal allergies and things like Claritin. So what is the connection between histamines and food? Okay. So before I start this, I am I have a feeling that the audience has not heard anything about histamine intolerance before, but I want to I want to do a quick survey here and we're going to find out. So tell me in the chat box whether or not you have heard anything about histamine intolerance from your doctor, from the internet. If you have heard of it, I want to know what your source is and where you've heard of it, okay? So cuz here's the thing, Histamine, so first of all, is related to seasonal allergies. Histamine is a part of our body. It's a normal part. It's not meant to be vilified because it's there and we need it when we're healthy. I have it running through my blood right now. But when histamine falls out of balance, this is when it can cause issues. Seasonal allergies is when your body reacts to like something in the air and it activates an uh, increase in histamine. It causes your body to release histamine. And it's more histamine than what your body needs. And then you get these symptoms, right? So like you get the runny nose or sinusitis, congestion, stuff like that. Right? Histamine intolerance is also histamine out of balance. It's when our body has an excess of histamine because of the food that we eat. Food contains histamine. And the reason that food contains histamine, by the way, all food contains histamine. There's, there's Every single food has histamine, um, but to varying amounts. The reason that food contains histamine is because of microbes. Microbes actually create histamine. And so like, what are some sources of histamine in our diet? Okay. Before I answer this question and talk about like the hist the high histamine foods, I just want you to know, first of all, this is clearly defined in the book. You have a table. Okay. It's in the book. It's also in the back of the book. By the way, you can download this table, whether you buy my book or not. If you, if you'd like, you can go to my website, theplantfedgut.com slash cookbook. And this is part of the bonus resources. The bonus resources are supposed to be for people who buy the book. I don't care. Just, just, just take them. If you want them, take them. All right. But, um, but basically like all of this, it may seem complicated. I'm going to make this super simple for you guys. First of all, the high histamine foods, fermenta fermented foods are the top high histamine foods because the microbes, the microbes make histamine. Um, 
there are many animal products that contain a large amount of histamine, like cheese or fish. These can be exceedingly high. When it comes to plant foods, it's actually a fairly limited number of foods. It's not as many as you would think. But there are some big ones that we eat probably with, like, with frequency. Spinach, tomatoes, eggplant, and dare I say it, avocados. Breaks my heart. I, I love avocado <laughs> toast, Chuck. Oh, no. You know that. Dude, you're breaking <laughs> hearts, man. I have a broken heart. I have a broken heart when it involves removing avocados. And, you know, by the way, uh, I've said this before on the exam room live, but I'm going to say it again. If when you make your avocado toast, if you have not put balsamic vinegar onto your toasted bread, it's time for you to do this. And then you should message me and let me know how wonderful it ha has been for you. Like it, how much it has changed your life. So anyway, uh, the, the, the thing about histamine is like, these are the high histamine foods, but in the book, make it super simple. Here are 26 low histamine recipes. And quite simply, eat this way. If you eat this way, then like, how do you feel? If you feel better, then you know that this is something that can potentially help you. And um, let me mention real quick, like some of the things that are high in histamine uh, or, or some of the symptoms of high histamine so that people know. So, because it can manifest throughout your entire body. It's not just a digestive thing. When people have histamine intolerance, the number one symptom is bloating. So if you have bloating, you should open up your mind to the possibility. Maybe this is, maybe this could be an explanation for your bloating. That's not getting better. Could be other digestive symptoms as well, but I'm about to list a bunch of symptoms. And what I want the listeners at home to think about is like, do you have two of these symptoms? Because if you do, you might benefit from this low histamine diet. Okay. So starting at the top, headaches, migraines, runny nose, like, you know, the seasonal allergy type symptoms, runny nose after a meal, you eat food, so suddenly your nose starts running, sinus issues, congestion, sore throat, uh, rapid heartbeat, lightheadedness, palpitations, shortness of breath, uh, skin. So you could have a rash, um, hives, flushing, almost sounds like an allergy. It's not, it's actually the histamine. Uh, but hives, uh, um, flushing, and then of course the digestive symptoms, it goes like this. If you have two of these symptoms, you may have histamine intolerance. It's possible. How do we test it? Easy. Eat from this book. All right. Let me read for you. I hope you don't mind, Chuck. Let me read for I you some of the recipes. Like, so if I didn't tell you that these recipes were low histamine, you would never know. Um, because you got things like a mango blueberry smoothie, sweet potato waffles, uh, blueberry buckwheat pancakes, sunburst summer salad, uh, the uh, pesto pasta salad, sweet corn and pepper gazpacho. Uh, we got sweet potato and black bean tacos, a gado gado quinoa bowl, mango burrito bowl. I mean, you would never even know. You're just eating delicious food. So what's cool is like you eat this way for two weeks and then you see how you feel.
I'm excited about some of those recipes, man. I am really, really excited about some of those recipes. Matter of fact, I'm excited about next Monday night uh, when you and I are going to go into the kitchen and we're going to make a sweet potato burrito recipe that's in the book. I'm going to be cooking and you and I are going to be talking on Instagram live about uh, how the gut microbiome completely changes when there is extreme weight loss. And, and you know, somebody who's been struggling with their health for so many years finally gets things on, on course. Like, it'll be really interesting to find out just what happens to the old digestive tract when all of that weight comes off and you start to eat that healthier diet. Like, is this going to be a radical overhaul that we expect? Does the transformation inside match what people are seeing on the outside? I would think so, but you're the expert, so we're going to save that one for Monday. But I'm excited about that burrito recipe. Um, I do have a question here from you, uh, for you rather, uh, from Melissa. And Melissa got a copy of uh, the Fiber Fueled Cookbook yesterday, got the Kindle version, has been flipping through it. Uh, we're talking about histamines here. And there's a chart in there, she says, um, uh, and it lists some specific nut butters and some that you may want to try compared to others. So her question is, why is peanut or cashew butter, why are they more likely to be a histamine trigger than almond or sunflower butter? Yeah, it's interesting. We, you know, when it comes to histamine intolerance, to be completely honest with you, part of this is your own personal experience. So if you were to consume almond butter or sunflower butter, then, and have these histamine intolerance symptoms, it, it I wouldn't dismiss that, you know, and I, it, it doesn't mean that you're wrong or something like that. But what we have discovered is that for whatever reason, peanut butter and cashew butter, maybe it's the process in which they're made, they do seem to cause more symptoms for people that have histamine intolerance. And in creating this section in the, in the book, one of the things that I did is I actually had someone who she lives with histamine intolerance, so does her mom. They have a genetic condition that predisposes them to histamine intolerance. And so she's figured out how to make all of these things work in her life. And I leaned on her personal expertise because there's no one who understands this more than this person who like not only her, but her mom are navigating this on a daily basis. And this is, this is the type of stuff that you discover is that again, like if the almond or sunflower butter triggers a histamine reaction, you should make note of that and you need to adapt for your personal self. But generally speaking, people that have histamine intolerance are going to be more capable of tolerating those two. Uh, here's an interesting question. So think about somebody whose stomach is always hurting. You think about maybe trying eating a bland diet and seeing if that works. Quinoa is a food I would assume would be part of a bland diet, but we have a question here from Danushka who writes, every time that I eat quinoa salad, my tummy hurts and I feel gassy and I feel like I need to go poop. She says, uh, even when she does, she sees undigested quinoa in the poop and that makes her not want to eat quinoa, but she struggles because she really loves that salad, Dr. B. So what could be going on here? Yeah, I, I love quinoa too. And so it's important for people to understand there are multiple different components or parts of our food that can potentially cause food intolerance symptoms. Food intolerance means that when you eat a food, it's causing unwanted symptoms afterwards, usually digestive symptoms. So now quinoa technically is low FODMAP. But the issue, so meaning that people who are sensitive to FODMAPs, they generally will do better with quinoa, but it still is very high in fiber. And so as a result of that, some people are going to struggle with this. The approach that you take to this particular issue 
is to start low and go slow. The problem with quinoa is that when we consume it, it's generally as a very large part of a bigger bowl. Like this is a quinoa bowl. We're going to load up a big old bowl of quinoa and we got to, we got to back it down. Um, you know, you need to start off with what if it was like literally a tablespoon of quinoa and that's your serving for today. And then a couple days from now, how about a tablespoon and a half? And we slowly ease into it. And by doing this, you are basically challenging your gut. It will rise to the challenge. It will grow stronger and it will become more capable incrementally at processing and digesting the quinoa until one day you discover like it's not, you're not measuring in tablespoons anymore. You're measuring in cups. How many cups are you putting into your bowl before you add whatever, like you're going to top it with chili or whatever it may be. That's the evolution of how we get our gut function back on track. Let's take a question from Jennifer wondering about some beans. We haven't gotten to beans very much yet. She's wondering why would black beans cause bloating when she eats them whole, but not so much if she blends them up or mashes them for a recipe. All right. So there's different ways that we can digest our food. Um, not so much with legumes. We don't typically ferment legumes, but um, you know, you could ferment food and in many cases by fermenting it, you are pre-digesting it. When it comes to legumes, there's ways that you can process your legumes to make it easier for you to consume them. One way is to soak them. When you soak legumes, it actually draws off a compound called raffinose. By the way, raffinose is not bad for us. It's actually quite good for our gut microbiome. But if you struggle with gas and bloating, it com makes complete sense for you to do this. Soak your legumes. It draws off the raffinose. It enters into the water. You pour out that water. And when you pour out that water, you are pouring out the raffinose. Um, you can pressure cook your legumes. In the book, I actually describe exactly how to do that. That's one of the ways that we can actually make it more digestible for our body. Um, but in this case, like blending it, you are disrupting the fiber. You are changing it. You are making it more easy to digest, breaking it up into smaller pieces. And this is the reason why a person, Mike, it's not just, it's not just legumes. I mean, some people struggle when they're eating a kale salad but then you throw some kale into a smoothie, they're perfectly fine. There are ways that we can pre-digest our food, including you know blending it, including uh, cooking it slowly, like, like in soups or stews or chilies, or by doing some of these techniques, like for example, uh, soaking it, pressure cooking it, things like that. Let's talk about probiotics here. This is a good question from Pat. I'm going to go the fermentation route. Uh, Pat is wondering, what is the difference between the probiotics in fermented food and those that are found in supplements? Well, in some cases, they're not really that different, to be honest with you, in some cases. So, for example, uh, if you look at sauerkraut, I'm fascinated by sauerkraut because... <laughs> Seriously, because I, I would have never, and it's not just the fact that I'm Polish. There's more to it than just that. But <laughs> it, it, I would have never like really even thought anything of sauerkraut for the vast majority of my life. You know, to me, sauerkraut was the really nasty canned sake stuff that my mom put on a hot dog that I didn't like when I was a kid. And what I've discovered in recent years, though, is that sauerkraut is this vibrant electric food that tickles the tongue and it transforms and brings out flavors when it's surrounded by other stuff. And it's so good for us. 
And what's really cool about sauerkraut chuck, the reason why I'm focusing on that with this question is that if you take a cabbage, like when I make sauerkraut, I, I don't need a sauerkraut starter or special bacteria. I just go to the store and I buy cabbage and I chop it up and I put it into uh, a mason jar with some salt water brine. And then like seven days later, it's starting to become sauerkraut and it really becomes mature and, and optimal probably at two, three, four weeks. Um, so in there, you will find bacteria like Lactobacillus plantarum, very prominently featured. Well, Lactobacillus plantarum is actually a probiotic and you could go to the store and you could buy a probiotic with Lactobacillus plantarum and pay for it. You could also make sauerkraut. Um, the difference between a probiotic capsule and the food is that the food is going to be a much more wide variety of different types of microbes represented in smaller proportions. Whereas the probiotic is typically going to be a far more limited number of microbes represented in very high proportions, very high counts. And so it's kind of like a very targeted boom. We're dropping all these specific, like, you know, one to five microbes. Boom, we're dropping these specific ones in there in a very high concentration with the hope that it helps you versus with the probiotic foods, the fermented foods. It's instead like, enjoy this food. It has fiber, it has polyphenols, and it has probiotics, all of which are good for your gut. All right. Well, so now you're talking about fermenting cabbage. Naturally, then my mind, you're a sauerkraut guy. I'm a kimchi guy. Love me some kimchi. Uh, some kimchi recipes, uh, if you buy some in the in the store, especially, they'll come with sugar in it. And I'm wondering how that might affect the beneficial properties of the fermentation if there's sugar added to a food. Yeah. So, well, first of all, there's um, recipes for both sauerkraut and kimchi and um, torshi which is a cauliflower ferment and fermented salsa and sourdough bread. All of these things are in my new book. There's a chapter exclusively about fermentation with the recipes that you need to do this. So like Chuck, you get to have your kimchi. You can make it. Yeah. <laughs> and I like kimchi too. The, uh, the issue is that when we buy food that has been prepared by the food system, you have to understand their responsibility is to create products that motivate you to come back and buy them again. And they will manipulate that food in whatever way possible that gives me, them an advantage for that to actually take place and to happen. So, uh, so they'll add sugar to foods that don't actually need sugar because they're hoping that you eat it and you're like, oh, this tastes good. I'm going to come back and buy this kimchi product one more time. So, you know, on the flip side, what we need to uh, do is make it ourselves and then we don't have to worry about what the food system is doing to our food. You know, I've called you the Prince of Poop before, but I think I'm going to switch that over to the Pharaoh of fermentation now. Uh, you are passionate about some fermented food, man, and I absolutely dig it. You know, when uh, when I was down there uh, helping build the studio not too terribly long ago, I remember seeing your jars of sauerkraut that you had fermenting and I didn't get a chance to try any, but definitely... Next time I'm in uh, in town, I definitely want the Dr. Will Bolsowitz sauerkraut extravaganza to happen. It needs to happen. Oh, definitely. And let me make a quick comment on um, a, a quick comment on the salt content in fermented foods. Yeah. So 
when we make these foods, typically salt is a required component in order to achieve optimal food safety. Um, if you eliminate the salt, then the ferment can kind of spin out of control and turn into something that you don't want it to be. So, you know, we, this is part of like doing things properly is to actually measure your salt content and make sure that it's there. People will often say, well, isn't salt like bad for us? Of course, in excess, in excess. But when you consume a healthful diet that includes a couple of bites of fermented foods, I can assure you that is not an excess of salt. <laughs> That's very different than the person who's eating chips all day long, right? So it's important to, I, I just think it's important to understand the nuance that the foods that we raise concerns about, part of the reason why we raise concerns about them is because people are wildly over consuming the salt. But when you consume a healthful diet, you are not radically over consuming salt and you should not be fearful of consuming a couple of bites of sauerkraut. You're not hurting yourself in doing this. And the research actually backs up that you are helping yourself now. New research out of Stanford University in the last year that showed us that you can actually radically improve your gut health in just 10 weeks by adding some fermented food to your diet. Uh, let's see here. What is the difference between the fiber found in Metamucil and the fiber that comes naturally in foods? Yeah. So Metamucil, the, the orange drink that my grandma used to stir so, so that she could have a bowel movement. It's so exciting, isn't it? Um, <laughs> this is, Chuck, this is Metamucil is the reason why the other day I walked into a local bookstore here in Charleston and I said, hi, I'm Dr. Bolsowitz. I'm, I'm the author of Fiber Fueled. And the, the attendant, who was probably uh, 19 years old, she was a college student, she says to me, you're kidding. You're Dr. Bolsowitz. She's like, I thought you were 85 years old. <laughs> and I'm like, you haven't read Fiber Field, have you? You're just judging me based upon the word fiber, aren't you? You know, you're, you're <laughs> thinking that the only person that would possibly write a book about, seriously, this did happen. I'm not kidding. You're, 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 you're basically saying that the only person that would possibly write a book about fiber is an 85-year-old. Uh, no, fiber is sexy. It's exciting. And the issue is it's way better than Metamucil. So there is a role for prebiotic fiber supplements. I'm not saying that they're not useful, but we want to get our fiber from our food. That's where we want it to come from. You don't want to start cranking up the Metamucil. You want to start cranking up the varieties of plants. And because every single plant has fiber, it's not, it's not hard to find fiber. Every single plant has fiber. When you quite simply consume a wider variety of plants, you're getting the fiber that your gut microbes need in order to thrive. Can Metamucil be added to that as a supplement? Yes, that's the role of a supplement. You add it to an already healthful diet in order to take it to a slightly higher level. So I personally prefer other uh, prebiotic fiber supplements instead of Metamucil. I find Metamucil a little bit hard uh, for people to do. So, you know, for example, uh, um, acacia powder, partially hydrolyzed guar gum, wheat dextrin. These are some of the options. But if you like your Metamucil, that's okay. No problem. All right. Uh, you talk about gluten quite a bit in the Fiber Fueled cookbook as well. And Amber is wondering whether gluten kind of gets a bad rap when we think about our health. Well, I think that, so let me say this. First of all, I, I always have to say this because there's always someone who's going to say, yeah, but what about celiac disease? If you have celiac disease, you need to be gluten-free, period. End of story. Um, so, but let's move outside of celiac disease and let's talk about gluten in wheat. I think this may shock some people, but wheat is not just gluten. There's other stuff in wheat. There's fiber, 
There's polyphenols. There are vitamins. There are minerals. There's actually a lot that's good for your gut microbiome. If you if you look at like real studies where people are eating bread, if it's high quality bread, they are enhancing the health within their gut microbiome. They're helping, for example, bifidobacteria, which are healthful microbes, to actually grow and be more powerfully represented. So, we uh, is gluten criticized unnecessarily? I think what's happened is that there are people who have like lost the nuance of the conversation and they're just painting with broad strokes like, oh, gluten must be bad because here are some of the reasons why we think it's bad. Okay, there is nuance. There is a difference between the junk food in the center of your supermarket that is wheat and gluten containing and, for example, a high quality organic whole wheat sourdough bread. Don't tell me that that organic whole wheat sourdough bread is unhealthy. It is not. That is a that is a healthful food. And it does contain gluten. And it also contains fiber and polyphenols and vitamins and minerals. So the point is this, quite simply, and I could dig into some of the studies, but I don't want to take 10 more minutes on it because it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a complex topic. And I do talk about it quite a bit in the book. But if you have celiac disease, you need to be gluten-free. If you don't have celiac disease, you should be including high-quality sources of whole grains, and that may include wheat. High-quality sources, not the junk food. All right. If you choose to be gluten-free, it's okay. You can still be healthy, but you need to move into gluten-free whole grains. Sorghum, quinoa, teff, amaranth. These are a couple of examples. Interesting question. I wonder if gluten could play a role here. Uh, Monica is wondering if a person were to eat a pizza that is made using vegan cheese and they still feel sick after eating that, could it be the gluten perhaps in the crust that's at play here? Or could it be any number of other things that are still the issue? So it could be the crust. That doesn't mean it's the gluten which I know is a shocking idea for a lot of people. But again, <laughs> seriously, because I think it's like automatically, like if it's a wheat containing food, it's like we're triggered. It's gluten. It has to be gluten. And the answer is no. First of all, the studies say that for people that have digestive symptoms, after consuming wheat containing foods, actually, it's not the gluten. But it could be the fructans. Fructans are the parts of wheat that actually can trigger their FODMAPs. They can actually trigger those symptoms. Um, by the way, I apologize if you hear the baby in the background. I have a three-week-old at home. Congratulations, uh, man. We all have our priorities. It's all good. This, uh, you know, this is, uh, I am a legitimate father. This is not, this is not fake in any way. <laughs> you know, I'm like literally here navigating as a dad and simultaneously doing this podcast. Um, so, but the other thing here, Chuck, that I do think is very relevant for people to understand is that, for example, uh, pizza dough or pizza crust, typically made with wheat that has been sprayed with glyphosate. And there is evidence that glyphosate actually disrupts and damages the gut microbiome. And so how do we avoid that? The answer is honestly organic when it comes to wheat. So like if you did the cauliflower crust, it's not sprayed with glyphosate. But the wheat crust is because the wheat is being dried out 
using the glyphosate. So this is this is where for me it's like if when I'm consuming wheat, I want to opt for organic whenever possible. Would you opt for organic when it comes to pretty much everything else as well because of the glyphosate? All right. So uh, glyphosate is, in the case of wheat, it's not genetically modified to tolerate glyphosate. So we have to, uh, part of this is education on like, how is glyphosate used? So in wheat, you harvest the wheat, it's a living food, and you need to dry it out. And so the glyphosate, when you spray it, glyphosate is a weed killer. This is Roundup. When you spray it onto the wheat, it will dry it up very quickly. It's, it's, it cuts time, right? Like if you are the food producer, you just cut time. Time is money. This makes sense. If your bottom line is money, this makes sense. Um, now, not all foods are sprayed with glyphosate. Um, but, uh, for example, soy that has been genetically modified is actually designed to be uh, resistant to glyphosate. And the reason why this exists, to be perfectly honest, is because this is this is feed for livestock. So they have created genetically modified soy that they spray with glyphosate. It kills all the weeds. It kills basically all the life around the soy so that the soy can be given an enhanced uh, opportunity to grow. And then you ultimately will feed this to animals. But guess what? This could get into our food system too. It gets into our food supply. How do you avoid that? Organic, organic soy. When I get tofu, I always get organic. When I get soy milk, I always get organic. Does everything need to be organic? No, it does not. I personally choose organic whenever possible. Part of that is because I don't like the glyphosate being sprayed into our environment. But if I'm thinking purely about my health and food, and trying to balance that against cost, which is real. I get that. Like, I totally get that. Then my rule is this. If the skin is thin, buy organic for the win. That means uh, greens, berries, apples. If you're going to eat the skin, buy organic for the win. Flip side, Chuck, I might need your help on this. If the skin is thick, it doesn't have to be organic. Is that okay? Yeah, not yeah. You can even like drop a few syllables if the skin is thick, non-organic, and just keep it at go. that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. If the skin is thick, non-organic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> really dragging out this non-organic. That's it, man. So, Emphasize it. Emphasize every syllable. You got this orange. You're peeling that orange, right? You got this avocado taking the skin off the top. You got this banana. You're peeling back this banana. Um, you're throwing away the skin. You're consuming what's underneath whatever pesticides or whatever it was sprayed on top, it's removed. You're okay. So when I'm looking, when I'm buying fresh produce, that's what I do. Now, the other thing to bear in mind is you don't have to only buy fresh produce. Like when I buy blueberries and I'm making a smoothie, those are not fresh picked blueberries. They're frozen and they're organic and they're a lot less expensive. All right, we've got time for one more question. And I think it's appropriate given the fact that you are uh, the proud father of a newborn baby and uh, we've got some other kids in the house today too. All good. Wendy is a mom, says she's a big fan of yours, loves the cookbook, wants to know though, will her kids like the recipes that are in there? I think so. I think your kids will like the recipes that are in there. Um, so because the thing is, the if, if the food is colorful, 
and is delicious. And you can pull your kid into the kitchen to help with cooking. If you create those circumstances, your kids are going to love the food. And so that's some of the tricks that I've used is like, get the kids in the kitchen with you, make sure it's colorful. And if it tastes good, you win. No question about it. I mean, look, the recipes in there do not lack on two things, flavor and color. You have home runs for days in that book when it comes to those recipes. I mean, just look at the, I mean, look at the cover itself. Look how enticing that is. You literally have every single color that's in a 64 pack of crayons, man. I mean, this is just fantastic on the cover. Um, you just have to be super, super, super thrilled with, with everything that's, that's in there, man. I think that it's so eloquently laid out and there's so much knowledge and so so much just deliciousness in there, man. Like I, I'm, I'm so grateful that you sent me a copy of that book ahead of time. And I've actually had a chance to try out a few of those recipes now, man. And I'm stoked to be making that burrito again next week, man. It's just, it's all so daggone good, Dr. B. Oh man. Thank you so much, Chuck. I'm super proud of the book. I'm, I'm grateful for my team that helped to make this possible. I had great people that helped me uh, to create this book. And, you know, I, I sincerely believe no matter who you are, there is value in this book for you because you should care about gut health. Like it is so important. And even if you think your gut is good, we can make it better. And you can eat in a way that brings you tremendous joy, makes you very happy, and simultaneously elevates your health from the inside out. That's what this book is about. I want to give you the tools. I want to put it on the table and then I want you to make it your own. Do it in your own way in whatever way makes you happy. That's the way I say it. Yeah. And I want to give the exam rubies an opportunity right now to get their hands on a copy of this. So all you need to do is click on the link in the show description or in the episode notes right now, or you can jump on over to the plantfedgut.com to order your copy today. Just a fantastic book. And uh, we, you and I, my friend, we are far from done. Okay, because in addition to cooking in really big pants, you and I are doing next Monday night on my Instagram live uh, at Chuck Carroll WLC. We're also doing a full blown fiber fueled cookbook takeover next Wednesday, one week from today, next Wednesday, where we're going to be doing not just the live show at noon Eastern, 10 a, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific, two hours earlier. You and I are going to be doing a Physicians Committee, a PCRM Instagram Live takeover as well, an exclusive episode of The Exam Room Live featuring Dr. B, the Gut Health MD, and the Fiber Fueled Cookbook just for our Instagram followers. So check us out there next Wednesday, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. Would love to see you there. And then join us again at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific for the exam room live right back here on YouTube and on Facebook. I know that you have to go. You have so many people to talk to. You're making massive rounds this week, man. And again, Dr. B, I'm just so, so, so thrilled for you and the release of the book, man. Just congratulations, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. And you know, I, the other thing I just want to say real quick is that I see and feel the support of the exam roomies. They come out of the woodwork all the time and talk about how much they love you and I, Chuck and the episodes that we do together. And so I just I just wanna thank y'all for your support. It's like in these big moments where I'm launching a new book and y'all come out and you show up, you support, you buy the book, buy you know your local bookshop, and then you post it to your social media and you tag me, it means so much. Thank you so much, you guys.
You know, you hear Dr. Bolsowitz on this show and you hear what a great guy he is, but let me tell you about what he's like in real life as well. True story. He went out of his way to accommodate the show this week because as I record this, I'm about three and a half hours away from our usual studio. I'm all the way out in the western part of Virginia. And my mom has unexpectedly been taken to the hospital. So I'm out here helping her out and keeping her company as she recovers. And all this week, despite the fact that Dr. B has had these massive media obligations and meetings and everything that comes with launching this cookbook, he has still been taking the time to check in and make sure that she's doing okay and offering to answer any questions that we might have. And also being so gracious to say, yeah, we can absolutely record the show a little bit differently than what we ordinarily would. Just such a good guy. And I'd be remiss also if I didn't thank everyone who has sent in well wishes on Instagram as well. My mom greatly appreciated them. So thank you guys so very much for that. And yeah. Dr. B is a great guy and I wish him all of the success in the world and I don't have to tell you that he has some really good information. I mean, life-changing information for a lot of us. So don't forget to click the link in the episode notes right now to pick up your copy of the Fiber-Fueled Cookbook. Such a good read, such tasty recipes that could potentially change your life. Who knows? And by the way, Little Baby Bolsowitz, who made her first ever cameo on the exam room today, she is absolutely gorgeous. And he has posted a picture of her on his Instagram. And if you would like to see the latest addition to the Fiber-Fueled family, and what a sweetie she is, you can go ahead and check that out. He's at the Gut Health MD, or just click that link again in the episode notes. And who knows? Maybe she'll be making an appearance while we're making burritos in my kitchen on Instagram Live next Monday night, May 23rd. We start rolling those bad boys at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Do hope to see you there at Chuck Carroll WLC and of course at the Gut Health MD tag teaming in Instagram Live while we talk about extreme weight loss and how your microbiome changes while we're making burritos. And of course, also plenty more even after that because we're going to be right back here on the podcast next thursday and that is on the heels of another instagram live that will be on wednesday may 25th at 10 a.m eastern 7 a.m pacific and that one is exclusively for followers of the physicians committee on instagram so at physicians committee wednesday may 25th 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, we will be doing an exclusive Q&A with Dr. Bolsowitz right then, right there. And then at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we're going to hop back on YouTube and Facebook for another edition of the Exam Room Live. So we're talking about a full fiber-fueled takeover, and we hope to see you there. And speaking of takeovers, the Physicians Committee needs somebody to take over a job in accounting. We are looking for an accounting associate who lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Here are the particulars for this position. We are looking for a detail-oriented professional with a bachelor's degree and at least one year of related experience. 
Now, the accounting associate will be busy assisting with the day-to-day -day financial operations, as well as managing cash receipts and bank deposits, helping with budget administration, direct mail expenses, accounts payable, sales tax filings in multiple states, and a few other duties. SAP Conquer experience is a plus. And the hybrid position requires you only to be in our Northwest Washington, D.C. headquarters once or twice a week, and you can work from home the remainder of the time. So if you like beans, and well, what vegan doesn't, and you happen to be a bean counter, we would love to hear from you. So go ahead and click the link in the episode notes or visit pcrm.org careers to apply today. And don't forget, if you are looking for a good plant-based doctor or dietitian, the staff at the Barnard Medical Center could be just what you're looking for. Telemedicine visits are available, so please visit right now barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 for a full list of states where services are available and schedule your appointment today. 202-527-7500 or log on to barnardmedical.org. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you once again to my friend Dr. Will Bolsowitz for being here as we celebrate the release of the Fiber-Fueled Cookbook. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>